You're fed up with a 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from a traditional career but don't know how? Business Breaks is here to help. Subscribe now and rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. Enjoy the show. Welcome, listeners, to another enlightening episode of Business Breaks, the podcast that delves deep into the fascinating world of entrepreneurship, corporate leadership, and the inner game of business success. I'm your host, Dante Healy, and together with my co-host, John Byrne, we'll be discussing what makes business leaders and visionaries tick. In this dynamic realm of commerce and innovation, it's not just about numbers and strategies. It's about the psychology that drives decisions, the mindset that powers achievements, and the inner game that separates the remarkable from the ordinary. So have you ever wondered what sets apart those people who turn challenges into opportunities, or how corporate leaders make critical decisions under immense pressure? Well, you're in for a treat, because today we're diving headfirst into the psychology of business, a world where grit, resilience, and growth mindset reign supreme. So if you're an entrepreneur seeking the next breakthrough, corporate leader striving for excellence, or simply someone with a burning passion for the psychology of business success, hopefully you'll enjoy this episode of Business Breaks. So sit back and let's discuss the inner game and psychology of business. So John, where shall we start? Oh gosh, yeah, where to start? There, there, there are so many places where uh, with psychology, business, everything is to do with psychology. And you know, we've... We've had a few episodes in the past on negotiations. We didn't specifically call out psychology then, but everything we mentioned then was to do with psychology. It's the same with networking. We we did the you know we mentioned in, in a past episode about it's all PR, it's all marketing. You're marketing yourself. You're marketing something else, and that's all psychology. And everything is um, psychology. You need to know just as a brief before we get in depth into the the, the segments that that we're going to discuss. You know, as a generalization, as a general rule, you need to know not only what to look out for when you're when you're when you're dealing with anybody for any reason, whether it's on a professional or a personal level, um, to to read on the you know the body language, the 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 various things, but to find out what the why is. Why are they behaving the way they are? Why are you behaving the way you are? Because that's the psychology. If you can figure out the why, it can help you so so much. That if you're getting defensive. Recognize you're getting defensive and find out why you're getting defensive and then see if you can stop that because being defensive or being overly aggressive is, is probably not the best way to have any kind of a relationship. And whether you're talking about interviews for jobs or you're talking about um, negotiations, whether you're talking about just working well with your, your colleagues, uh, psychology permeates every aspect of business as well as, as personal life. It's, it's where a psychological that, you know, people are a psychological animal. It, it, you know, it's, it's all psychology for us. Yeah, and it's such a broad topic, psychology, that it invariably overlaps into the idea of business success being about that person who's driving the business is also being driven by their mindset and yeah. what their mental models are of the world, how they perceive the world, how they translate that perception into actions. But, and, and going a step back, decisions which turn into actions. So being goal oriented, and I think it all starts really from having a goal and really defining what does business success mean. 
For some, it might be survival. For some, it might be massive growth. And again, that all depends on the individual. So the psychology has to be oriented towards a individual's, well, yeah, psychology, which if we break it down, it's is going to be based on how they perceive the world, how they operate within the world, which comes back to a number of factors, both in terms of nature versus nurture, their natural traits, plus those traits that they've developed over time through their environment and their, uh, shall we say, role models that they choose to emulate and maybe even creatively creating new ways of doing things and new models of perceiving the world to generate maybe an advantage over their peers and to an extent competitors. And and that is a big issue. You know, that's why you see so many businesses that you kind of, if you look at the pure business aspect of it, mm-hmm. these two businesses are exactly the same. They have the same fundamental um, models. They, they, they were sound, yet one of them is incredibly successful and the other one is not. And that comes down most usually to the mindset, as you said, of the leaders, you know, whether it's the CEO, the entrepreneur who started her up or the whole leadership team that they put together. And um, the growth mindset is, you know, there are lots of slightly different very definitions of it, but as a generalization, again, as a general rule, my definition of it, and you can hop in and, and um, contradict me happily if, uh, if you have a different definition. But my definition of the growth mindset is basically, if you have a growth mindset, you believe things can change. If you don't have the growth mindset, then you're kind of thinking, no, things are fixed and that's it. And if you believe things are fixed and there's no way to change it, you no matter how sound your business model is, you're very limited with how much you can grow because you're, you know, to grow, you have to change. Um, whereas if you've got the growth mindset, you believe things can change and people can change and people can learn and, and develop and that will help you grow because you know, you're know you looking for ways to change something and, and give yourself an advantage. That's true. You're, you're defeated before you start if you're really stuck in the perception that you can't change even though where you are now versus where you want to be, that there's a disconnect and you can't seem to bridge that gap. So really the growth mindset is trying to come up with new strategies, new ways of new ways of approaching a problem. It's not about changing necessarily the goal, but how you achieve the goal that helps you to find a way that can lead you to that successful outcome. I remember there is an influencer on LinkedIn and I actually paid for his course on finding your dream job. And um, it was funny because some people who were very coachable uh, would take uh, his material and they would use it to try and affect an outcome. And some of them were getting the results that were being promised. Other people were using this methodology, following the steps, but not getting amazing results, if that makes sense. And despite their best efforts, one guy in particular, he was... um, I would say he was really looked past retirement age, probably in his 60s, uh, looking for a, a senior level job in innovation. And he, the way he came approached his um, his interviews, it seemed like he had boundless energy, but he was just not getting it over the line in terms of finding those jobs. 
And I thought, well, it seems like a lot of the time the approach was targeted towards more graduate level candidates, but high potential, um, rather than probably the more senior people who maybe should be perceived as rather than job seekers, should be perceived as already being established within an industry, if that makes sense. So it kind of has context in that that way. And maybe there was nothing wrong with the approach because it was heavily focused on networking to find the job. And as they say, 80% of the jobs that are out there, the best ones are not advertised because usually a lot of the time they're crafted with an individual in mind because you've networked with someone, they've thought about you, they want to work with you. So when an opportunity comes up where they can hire someone, and they know that you have these traits, they're going to think, well, I know this person, I know I can work with them, and I want to work with them, let's create a role for them. And and that's, again, though, the, the growth mindset that, that helps that, because there's two, if you have a growth mindset, there's two kind of attributes that you have that are recognized. You know, people, an outsider, a third party can't tell that you have a growth mindset, but what they will tell is a, a couple of things that you know, usually at least number one, adaptability. You you are adaptable. You like to learn. You can adapt from one situation to another. That's, you know, as you said, if they if they even if you don't if you're networking and they want you and they know you're adaptable, they'll find a way to get you in. Um, and then the other one is resilience. Uh, you know, things will never go the way you planned it, you visualized it. And you lack the growth mindset, as I said, even though the, the fundamental business model might be exactly the same as somebody else's, when you hit that first hurdle, it'll defeat you because you you won't adapt you, you, you and you lose the resilience, you give up and you just try to persevere and, and, and go on. Whereas with the growth mindset, you are very resilient because no matter what hurdle you hit, you have this inner belief, your psychology of it is you can learn and overcome that. Yeah. How- there is you will figure it out if you keep going and one of the biggest challenges in business is getting customers and growing the sales you know in your top line a lot of the time you're not gonna just knock on someone's door it's very rare when say you're selling windows and suddenly someone says oh i could do i was just thinking about replacing my windows and you just turned up i'd like to place an order never happens that way you have to always keep touching these ideal clients, uh, networking, and then keeping top of mind just in case the demand does turn up. Mm. And you have to hope you're the right person in the right spot at the right time. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of the time, coming back to your point on resilience, there have been loads of times where you know, jobs, job hunting is hard, but so is trying to get sales for your business. And it's the same thing, isn't it, really? Because whether it's on a um, a contractual basis, a short-term assignment, as a, as a freelancer, or even selling a product, you're constantly reaching out to people with the prospect of rejection. And therefore, the resilience has to be, well, I know if I reach out enough people, it should just be a numbers game. And maybe you can refine your approach to get more say, feedback, like, you know, less, fewer rejections. Exactly. Get get the, um, you know, use that growth mindset, learn from the rejections. 
is it just that you know find out the why you get again and you know, did they reject you because they just weren't ready for your what you were selling at this point in time in which case you just try to keep in contact with them don't keep trying to sell them something but just keep in contact so that when they are ready for it they'll think of you or or is it something that they already have a supplier and they have no interest in moving you know one of your competitors in which case again keep in touch with them in case at some stage in the future they they do decide they they want to switch for whatever reason but don't keep trying to sell just keep in touch for, for things that have nothing to do with your business just keep in front and center or is it something that you're doing wrong maybe you're trying to hard sell too much you know people don't like to be sold to people like to buy but they don't like to be sold to um, and again that's pure psychology it's figuring out what do you, what does this person need and how do they how do they react to the various things and learn from that and that's if you have a growth mindset you'll learn from it if you don't have a growth mindset, you'll just keep trying to do the same thing again and again and again and again. And if it's not working with this person or these group, this people, this market, um, it'll never work with them, no matter how much you try. Um, and then that will wear you down. You're not adaptable. You're not adapting your technique and your resilience will struggle to keep going because you're just getting nowhere. But with the growth mindset, you will adapt. You'll learn a new style. You will learn how to deal with these people, learn how to read them. And um you know, then when you do get rejected, you will have to build resilience. No, no, this is not, this is not a rejection. This is a challenge. I need to figure out why they've rejected me. And I need to figure out, do I need to learn a new way of doing things? Or do I just need to give them time and just stay in touch with them, but not sell them anymore? Just, you know, that work with them in different ways. Yeah. And it's all also about in that networking, you have to think about the value you offer. So when you make those touch points, you have to provide some degree of value, whether that's information or just a pleasant experience, just being nice, being personable, not being high maintenance. And this can test even the most saintly person's patience when you keep offering, uh, you keep giving away value. Maybe, maybe it's being asked for for free as a sample, or maybe you're just offering it because you you're hoping that someone will reciprocate, but you shouldn't be thinking of these things as transactions. You should be thinking of them as investments to grow the relationship. Yeah. Because over time, eventually, one way or another, it should come back. But if you start, if you if you go in, offer, you know, people say lead with value. But if you lead with value, anticipating an immediate return or near immediate return, it, it can be challenging to keep your patience so you have to think well i'm not expecting anything out of it but counterintuitively you're hoping something will come back so and maybe you need to also whilst you're keeping your resilience keeping a positive attitude you also need to be resourceful and think how can i mix things up if one approach isn't working can i just tweak it or do i need to revisit the whole strategy so a degree of flexibility is important as well. Exactly. And that's equally, you know, applies to, we're kind of using the example again of, of uh, networking of sales, of trying to make a thing, but all of that is equally applicable to any relationship, even with, with colleagues in the same business. You're, you know, you, you aren't generally trying to sell them something, but, but you are in a way, you're trying to sell them you. You know, the service you provide is an internal business service. And presumably everybody provides some kind of internal business service if they're not customer facing. 
And uh, you know, that's what their job is. That's what they do. And they have to add value. And it's the exact, it works the exact same way. If it's, you know, if you're working HR and you're dealing with somebody from finance, you're, you're, it's the same as if you work in sales and you're dealing with somebody from a customer, you know, it's the same psychology. It's the giving them the value, giving them, don't um, be trying to do the hard sell, but by the same token, you do need to make sure they are aware of, of what's expected or or what you offer, depending on, you know, which side you're going from. And that all comes down, you know, in, in the initial thing is, is the mindset. It's, it's having some resilience, except accepting rejection um, to a certain degree. You know, nobody, you know, it's like, don't be a bad loser. I mean, if you're playing a sport, you know, you don't have to like losing, but when you do lose, don't walk off in a, in a huff congratulate your opponent be be and um, you know respectful and try to figure out what went wrong and fix it so the next time you won't and that's the exact same with the you know the growth mindset is when you get rejected accept it don't um but don't burn bridges either because it could be just a temporary rejection um and that's very hard for people sometimes to take but if they have the growth mindset it's it's automatic that's just who they are now oh re- rejection that's only temporary um, I won't keep the hard sell, but I'll ask the why. You know, not necessarily if the person that has rejected you, um, but you'll figure it out yourself. You know, why did they reject you, and and uh, or reject what you were offering, not rejecting you personally. They they rejected. That, that's the other thing I suppose is in the psychology is, is don't take it personally. Yeah, and I guess moving on from that into something slightly related, but again coming to the idea of. When you're in business, you have your inner game sorted, say you're resilient, you're flexible, you're adaptable, you're curious, so you're looking at new innovative ways to deliver value. You have to align that inner game with what's going on in your business. So it's all about making the right decisions and having the right frameworks in place to make good quality calls on what's going on in your business. In order, and and one of those things is, for example, you you want to be financially sound when you're running your business. So, again, making those right decisions, the right financial decisions, the right operational decisions, the right sales decisions. You know, it's all about qualifying. The majority of your sales success is qualifying your customer, making sure there's alignment because you don't want to be serving the wrong people because you end up creating variations or just dissatisfied customers or you want to make sure as well that what you're doing is actually being able to be delivered is set up to be delivered at a price that is costing you less to deliver it than you you are charging on to your customer so there, there has to be a margin that is sufficient for you to make it feasible to operate your business. So when you overlay that with different variations, different changes that's continuously going on in the business, adapting to your environment, I guess successful decision-making really boils down to how well you perceive the world, how well you are able to synthesize that information and it may be data it might be uh, intuition and then how does that translate into how you communicate those decisions to your team if you have a team in order to get the best possible outcomes 
from their actions. So I guess, John, in terms of that decision-making, what have you seen or what examples inspire you in terms of the right decisions? And maybe what lessons have you learned from observing the wrong ones? I've seen the wrong decisions often made in meetings for two reasons, panic and um, refusal to accept different way of thinking. You know, oftentimes if somebody goes into a meeting and there's bad news given, when people don't have a process for de- dealing with that, leaders oftentimes, and especially if they feel they're under pressure to lead, they'll panic and they'll rush into a decision that they didn't think through. They'll just try to come up with some kind of a solution to the problem. And I have to admit, I've, I've done that in the past myself. Um, I, I've done a project management role and, and um, there was a, a situation where um, the overall company was putting a freeze on change. So we could not meet the deadline that had been given to us because of the freeze on the change. And I was then jumped straight into um, solutions mode. Okay, what can we deliver? We can deliver this, we can this, that, the other. And the guy I was reporting to just kind of said to me, now, hold on a second. Uh, what what impact does it have to to complete the project? And I said, well, with this freeze for a month, it means we're, a month, we're going to have to wait a month to do it. And he says, right, put that into your project plan and resubmit the project plan. That was it. That was all, you know, I was kind of went into panic mode trying to come up with solutions to get as much done as possible before the freeze happened. And he said, no, no, we stick with the project. The timelines are going to be affected because of the phrase. Put that into your plan. And then what ended up happening was when we did that and we went to the higher ups, they looked at it and they said, well, what you're doing, the phrase shouldn't really apply to it. So we're going to give you an, an opt-out. So you can go back to your original plan without the phrase. And, and so it turned out to be I panicked for no reason. But that can happen that when you get bad news, you you go into survival mode effectively and you don't think things through and, and, and do it. Um, you, you panic. And then the other reason, which thankfully I don't think I've ever personally been guilty of, where I have seen many people be guilty of, is especially leaders, when uh, somebody comes up with a suggestion or does something that doesn't match what their preconceived bias is, they reject it out of hand. They don't consider it because it's not what they... So on. So I think they can be two bad things, which is which is why I think maybe, as you said, if you have a process or something in place when you don't need it, when the bad news hits, when something happens, you follow that process, and that process should following the process should just give you time to think, mm. so you don't panic, and also make you consider alternatives. Don't be stuck in your your you know again the growth mindset that we just discussed earlier comes down to that, that and you are willing to accept that your way may not actually be always the best way even if it has worked in the past maybe this is a slightly different situation that needs a slightly different solution yeah, no. examples have you come across or i just think uh, those two are very valid examples you know panicking you never make good decisions when you're under pressure but um for me, two two things that I've seen where which have caused failure. One is really ignoring the evidence to the contra- contrary, and that is that can be summed up as the the mental model, the sunk cost fallacy, where you keep keep going up, keep putting more and more money and resources and time into something that's clearly not going to work because you're hoping to turn a corner. 
whereas and, and failing to admit that you made a bad decision up front. So I've seen projects that have run on longer than they should have done and should could have could have redirected funding onto another initiative if it had been done sooner. But because people just want to just put a bit more effort, just get a little bit more time, and we will turn it around, it will come good. But And a lot of that is usually around legacy system replacements because really the approach... I've, I've had one project where we were trying to do some automations on a COBOL system, but this was a system that had been around for decades. And unfortunately, we had about 60 development opportunities and we were delivering it in a typical sort of SDM lifecycle. So it was on a quarterly cadence, off-quarter reporting, so you only had three effective periods to do your releases. And despite having a business requirements document, a technical specification, when it got to testing, the thing failed more than not, more often than not. And we were just trying continuously because we had the funding. We didn't want to lose the resource because things were coming up. People were asking for more automations. But I'd say about two thirds of them failed. So we delivered value, but not as much as we had hoped for in the business case. And eventually, the right decision was we redirected those resources and the funding. And when we were about, I'd say, just over halfway through, we we just reinvested the funding into something else. The approach we were looking to do was to save, save heads through automation, but we ended up saving a huge amount more through interest rates by optimizing the treasury and cash management system so it was it was one of those ones where if we'd done that sooner uh, we would have saved a lot more and we would have gotten a higher ROI Mm. so that was kind of you know sticking with something too long uh, and ignoring evidence to the contrary and I don't think it was just that it was just that we were being driven to meet an objective which was probably not the wrong objective, not the right objective when you step back and look at it in its entirety. So I guess you could argue there were reasons for opportunity costs being missed uh, because it hadn't been considered. And there was, again, it comes back to communication, taking into account uh, political elements as well. Because, you know, some departments get funding, others don't. And you don't want to surrender the funding in case you can use it. Because if you give it back, you you know, it's it's harder to get it back again. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And that's a, a, a mindset that they need to overcome in a lot of businesses is, is, you know, just because if somebody comes in under a budget, you know, for whatever reason, this, that, doesn't mean that they don't need all the budget the next time. They, they you know, that you uh, shouldn't. It's a, a big weakness with large companies, especially, and, and yeah. you know, with civil service and, and things like that. That they 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 then they waste money because otherwise if they don't. They're spend, afraid not to to lose it next time because if you give it up, it could be that's it. You're yeah. giving it up for good. <laughs> exactly. And the other the other decision making bias that I've seen is just greed. When people get too greedy, focus on price only. And not think strategically about what does value mean, reputation, you know, relationships, things like that. It it becomes quite 
difficult to get the best business decisions. I've seen people who've lost out, delayed on transactions because they asked for too much money up front. And eventually they they end up losing out in the longer term because of the customer that they should have sold to moved on, got something else. And actually there was a funny story where um this was this was really unusual. A company that I used to work for, they were selling off some equipment and they managed to sell it and then suddenly head office said, oh, we found a customer who will pay, uh, I think it was about eight times more. And and really what we'd done was we'd sold it to a company that were going to sell it to this other guys for eight times the price. <laughs> but then the head office knew the other guys and realized they were willing to pay more for it. So the 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 head of finance in that unit decided to try and reverse the transaction and say, we're not we're breaking the contract. We're not going to sell it anymore. And then the client said, "Well, if you're going to do that, can we meet up just to discuss the terms? Because clearly we've got a contract here, and we need to have an agreement." So, so naively, this uh, senior finance guy went with the purchaser, so the person who was responsible for the transaction to a hotel. Guess what? They were met with <laughs> this uh, this 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 customer and a team of 20 lawyers and he said <laughs> the buyer t- he said i aged two decades in that one in the two hours like literally they said if you if you reverse on this transaction we're going to wrap you up in a lifetime's worth of litigation over this because it was we were talking about it was mo- it was selling it for seven figures uh, and they were going to sell it on for eight figures it was that sort of high stakes so but again you can't legally you know if you if you make a bad deal well that's it and and ethically as well i mean you know you just got to take it on the chin if you've made a bad decision yeah you missed your opportunity to get the eight figures but you got the seven figures and you were happy with the seven figures if you didn't know eight figures existed you were going to be happy with the seven yeah so you know but it was funny how they were lured into that you know because you know, first off, if you're going to go into a meeting, you don't you don't go to a gunfight with a knife, mm. and you don't go into their their territory. It was just it was a classic case of everything you shouldn't do in business, and uh, starting with rushing to sell sell this uh, this asset. Exactly, and that, and that kind of event as well all goes down to they they weren't asking the the, the why mm-hmm. why do we need to sell. Why do they want to buy? And, and then when that deal was done and we and they decided we want to pull out of this, why do they want the meeting? You know, if, if they asked the why, you know, I'm sure at that stage it wouldn't have come, you know, actually they, they probably want the meeting because we're about to do them out of an awful lot of money. They're probably going to have legal representation at that. Maybe we should as well. <laughs> exactly. Or, or even before you get to that stage, maybe we should have checked with our own legal people to say, do we have any way of legally getting out of this contract? Yeah, uh, yeah. But then ethically as well, you just have to ask the question, well, we did a deal with them and we were happy with the deal before we realized this other crowd were going to pay more. So, you know, maybe we just need to be continue to be happy with the deal. Yeah, this this finance guy, he was um, is a, a very amicable and personable person. 
but yeah, tended to make decisions from the hip. And that's another problem is when you make decisions too fast on the fly and relying on your relationships and your networking. This, this is the classic case of failing upwards, I think. Again, yeah, the psychology have a process in place. Yeah. Decision making and, and make sure that nobody, whether it's you personally or anybody else on your team or that, nobody ever shortcuts that process because the whole point of the process, whatever the process is, you know, there's, there's many different processes and it doesn't have to be measured to complicate, but whatever it is, what it should do is make you think about what you're doing. Mm. Don't, you know, trust the intuition, but then, evaluate the intuition before you act on it and seek expert guidance especially yeah. if the stakes are high yeah. once you're talking about large transactions once you talk about large transactions you really need to make sure you've done your due diligence before you go into any commitment exactly and the largest large transactions are just large um you know, it'll have a big repercussion, large repercussions for your business or for your relationships in your business or whatever. Then they need longer to think about it. And, and if you need to get outside, don't be too proud to get outside. Um, getting an outside expert does not make you weak. It makes you smart. Mm. Even if you are an expert in that area, just having a second opinion sometimes can just make you think about something you may have missed initially. Yeah. And, uh, they may not have even the person you're talking to may not have even um, brought her up but just having the conversation with them made you think of it so have a process that forces you to you know depending on what exactly the decision is that you're doing but forces you to think about or forces you to evaluate it before you actually make the decision try to avoid panicking into a decision and try to avoid making a decision out of pure stubbornness because you're not willing to consider anything else yeah and then try because you know once you're committed it's in it's very difficult to reverse course. Yeah. So you have to deal with the consequences a lot of the time, especially when you're committing resources to an initiative. You have to really go through and and think of scenarios as well. You know, there's that classic best case, worst case, and then the most likely. Right. When you do scenario analysis, you're always looking at those three outcomes. And then with the worst case, you have to think, well, what would I do if I encountered that? What would be my contingency? Can I insure it out? Can I mitigate through act through counteractions, countermeasures? Uh, and and again, it's it's having a plan B, C, D if necessary, and making sure that 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 those potential things are communicated. Even if you don't communicate the details of plan D or whatever, but they, they people know there is a you know if things go wrong. But but being trustworthy as well when you make a decision. You've taught about it enough that you stick with it. And I have had, I, not not with me personally, but I, I have seen another person as, as used to complain a lot about their boss. And the reason that they were that they were complaining was that their boss, you know, person A would go to their boss and say, I'd like to do this, that, the other, their boss would say, yeah, go for it. Then person B would come over and say, I'd like to do something, this, that. Yeah, go for it. But what person A wants to do and what person B wants to do are mutually exclusive. They both can't do it. And... So it's who, who asked the boss last is, is the one who currently has the permission. So the boss kept changing their minds. They'd agree to do something and then somebody would point out there was a problem with it and then they'd backtrack on it and they'd disagree. You know, they'd say, no, it's not being done, having given the go ahead and various things like that, which meant nobody trusted them. You know, that that was the whole thing that, you know, you ask them, they won't remember what they said tomorrow. So, and then it started, some people just started not bothering to ask. 
because they said, well, if she hops on there, I'm doing this, I'm just going to say, I did ask him, he says, yeah, because that was how flustered the, the leadership person was getting, that they were just, they didn't even remember some of the conversations they had, but they had no process for decision-making. When they left, they were replaced by somebody who had a process. They didn't make a decision until they thought about it. So you went and you asked them, person A went and asked them, can they do something? Yeah, give me your proposal. Let me evaluate it and I'll come back to you. And then, and then part of that evaluation would be they'd go and they'd ask person B, C, D, and A, you know, whoever was was saying, this is what we're thinking of doing. Is there, a, can you see any problems with it? And if there were problems, they wouldn't get to go ahead to begin with. It wouldn't be a case of, yeah, after you've started now, I'm, I'm pulling the plug because I didn't, re- I wasn't aware of this problem. Most problems that they were aware of. But I was just having that process in place. It was a simple process. And the, the new leader, she simply did not make decisions until give her a proposal and then depending on the size, the scale of what was being asked, she'd take time. Now, sometimes for small things, she'd just say, yeah, you know, if it's a small thing that it doesn't really matter, you know, can I, can I, can I have an early lunch? Yeah. yeah, You know, that's not going to impact on anybody. But for bigger decisions, which is usually what, you know, you're talking about, she'd at the very least sleep on it. That she would not be panicked into or rushed into making the decision, um, you know, do this by X time or we can't do it. Well, in that case, we're not going to be able to do it because I won't be able to make a decision until tomorrow. And this is where mature companies have a good governance process. It may seem over-engineered, but when you've got interdependencies, you want to make sure that all of the stakeholders are engaged in that decision and have an input. Not everyone can be satisfied with business decisions, especially in large organizations, because there's competing agendas, competing requirements, and LinkedIn goals. However... If you make sure you communicate those trade-offs and you record them so past decisions can be evaluated in the context of any future decisions you make, you'll be able to understand kind of the direction your your choices are leading you to. And if need be, if you need to course correct, then yeah, you can do because you have a record Whereas if you're just shooting from the hip and forgetting what you've decided on and clearly not giving any thought, then that's, that's, that is a very critical process problem. So yeah, brilliant, um, brilliant point. And finally, in terms of that evaluation of your decisions, where does data come into it? Do you think? And we're, we're surrounded by data, surrounded by knowledge. And if knowledge and data was the only thing we needed to be successful, we'd all be billionaires, they say. But it's not just about data, it's how you use the data, how you analyze it, how you pro to give you better decisions. So what's your views on data-driven decision-making? Do you have, have you seen a process that works well in this regard, John? Oh, well, we're from finance background, so we, we can probably give loads of examples of um, finance data. Yeah, I, I think it, it can. I, I, I One one of the, the best uses of data, it wasn't actually financial data, it was um, customer feedback data. And the decisions that were made based on that, yeah, the, the person, you know, he'd set up his own business, um, he had, it was all customer facing, you know, his employees are customer facing. What he used to do was he, he'd have, you know, quarterly um, questionnaire that he'd get 
second amount of feedback from his customers. But he he personally did and still does exit interviews. The, the, the business model he had was his customers were on a subscription basis. And it, it was, you know, uh, when they left, then they'd give the notes. But when he, they gave, anyone gave the notes, he personally would be contacting them, you know, whether over Zoom or trying to see them in person when they were in his uh, premises. And he'd have an exit interview with them to find out why are they leaving, you know, why are they? And that worked really well because that fed his decisions that he'd be getting feedback and he would, uh, he'd see certain things that were, you know, people were leaving over. Sometimes it was nothing, there was nothing he could do about it. They were moving the country, you know, they were thing, things like that. But where there were problems, he seen them. And then he actually made his decision and he's, he's gone one step further now. And in that, he, he kind of tries to encourage um, his staff now to meet with people in their classes on a semi-regular basis, find out how they're feeling with it. So if they're not um, happy about something, he's fixing it before they leave him. Whereas in the past, he was he was making the decisions after they'd left, you know, they, they, they were leaving and he found out why and he tried to make sure that nobody else left for that reason. But now he's actually yeah, finding out before they leave what they're unhappy about and trying to fix them things. And that's a, a good way, I think, of um, of using the data that he, he was actually, he, he came up with, true trial and error through his own experience, he came up with, these are the reasons why people tend to leave. Okay, so what questions could we ask to find out if people are starting to be unhappy about those things before they leave and and he used that data and he makes decisions based on that you know whether to to continue with certain classes whether to to not sometimes you know that's the problem the timing of the classes and things like that sometimes it's the equipment and um, you know how long should he use a piece of equipment before he replaces it yeah that's things like that you know these are all decisions but he uses data to do that it's not financial data it's customer feedback data yeah Ultimately, the financial statements invariably more often than not prove to be a lagging indicator versus a leading indicator. And they're somewhat limited without the operational context. Because if you say, say you're preparing a set of financial statements and you say sales are down 10% on last period or last year, and we need to improve that or we need to cut costs. But then you don't know what actions do we need to take to improve so improve our top line. Why why has it dropped ten percent? Is it just general industry changes, consumer spending patterns, so changes in taste or behaviour? Is it that we've lost the key salesperson and uh, they've taken the business with them, <laughs> and it's moved to a competitor? What is the context? And then if you just arbitrarily put a task on the operations to say you need to you need to deliver, you need to service our existing customer base, but now you have to do it with 10% less resources, what do you cut? Do you cut your marketing budget and lose even more sales? Do you cut on uh, quality of product? And again, you could potentially lose more sales. Or do you try and streamline to be more efficient, but then run the risk if it's not well executed to to failing to serve your business and then again, losing customers. So there's kind of like this complex interrelated set of factors that involve uh, that need to be managed. And again, when you're making decisions, you might have data, but are you processing it in the correct way? 
Are you linking ideas? Are you linking it back to your business model? Do you understand your operations to know where to cut, where you have excess excess expenditures? So, for example, you might be holding inventory because you're overstocking all the time. So perhaps you can release some of that as real cash in order to meet obligations and maybe reinvest in back into the business. It's it's all of these things. Where where is where are the potential opportunities to unlock value? And I think one of the key things though from a psychological point of view is be willing to pay attention when when you get the answer. When well when when the data comes in and it's pointing mm. to something, don't ignore it because you don't like what it's pointing to. Yeah. At the same time, is data itself very limited? Uh, say, for example, there are certain certain scenarios where you need to rely on intuition because there is no data. So, for example, you're launching a brand new product. It's an innovative product. You don't have history. So you won't have data. So in this regard, you still need to collect data. You still need to think about that because at the end of the day, the data that you will collect will enable you to look back and look at your decision-making process, even in an innovative um, endeavor, shall we say. So say you're setting up a brand new product. And again, things like in the early stages when I was looking at how the mobility the mobility industry, so um, moving from vehicle ownership to vehicle, shall we say, use, so renting vehicles versus actually purchasing them and owning them outright, a lot of those new ways of shall we say, doing business with regard to transportation were being piloted. And again, to do that, you needed data to understand customer demand and also what was the capacity because there were peak periods where people would want a vehicle, but there were also considerations, how many vehicles did you need at any one time to service uh, the custom service and meet customer demands? So again, things like that where you're not you you're, you have hypotheses and you need to test them. So again, times it's really just looking at heuristics and trying to reason through. But I guess data combined with, I guess, critical thinking is important in order to move you closer to successful outcomes. And as you said, learning learning from the data, whatever the data is, whether it's financial, whether it's feedback, you know, data is body language is data. You know, that if you're getting body language from a meeting with somebody, learn from it. If you don't recognize what it means now, make sure you know what it means next time. Um, right. to, because they, that, and to, to know that the data is not the be all and end all. It's, it's learning from that data. What does it mean? Why is that data giving you or is, is, is uh, you know, are you being, is, is, is it something about you? Is it something about the pair, other people involved? But recognizing that and learning how to deal with it. I think, yeah, data has always been there. I think the only difference is systems are being, are getting more sophisticated so they can deal with not just structured data like the transactions recorded in a book of accounts on a digital ledger, but also unstructured data like images, voice tone. And again, this is big in 
at the moment the trend we're seeing is generative AI, right? So, but being able to evaluate people and use that data, that type of data in a business, that's getting really interesting. The, we have more data than ever. <laughs> it's But then you need to have the right the right processes, the right procedures, the right controls in place. And I guess to a certain degree, the ethics, which is really important, it's whose data are you accessing? Do you have permission? And how are you using it to benefit your business? And are you actually are you actually permitted to use that data? Does that make sense? So so yeah, I guess uh, I guess we've uh, we've covered everything in terms of the uh, mindsets around business success. So John, thank you very much for your time. Uh, do you have any concluding thoughts? No, I think we 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 covered everything. I suppose the the, the thing is, while well, we we kind of got a little heavy into data, which you kind of think, well, psychology and data are two different things. But I, I think the key thing there is no, they're two sides of the one kind. You know, the the data gives you some stuff, but it's the psychology behind, it, especially when you're dealing with humans. It's the psychology behind why the data is what it is. That's what you have to figure out. Um, and that way, then you can, uh, you know, preempt stuff or deal with stuff or pivot or or whatever. Um, and yet, it, 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 you know, to recognize the psychology does not just apply to the other people; it applies to you as well. Where are you behaving the way you are? And um, does the data tell you anything about that? Does your own feedback tell you anything about that? Um, and and if, if if the way you're behaving is not giving you the outcomes you want, change it figure out why and then change it um, and yet you know that's how but it permeates every aspect not just business uh, personalized but, but not just business of dealing with customers or, or competitors or negotiations just talking to your comrades in, in arms and in the canteen at the, the water cooler at your desk if it's a hot you know if it's a, an open desk uh, thing or even at your desk if you've got your own office and somebody comes in to talk to you and I think coming back to what we kicked off the conversation with about the inner game and psychology, it is really about how you perceive the world, how you structure your own internal workings and processing of the information that you have to hand in order to affect the desired outcome. So again, how that applies to business is if you're present and you know what you're doing in in terms of your goals, your purpose, and what you're trying to achieve, then you're more likely to be able to achieve it if you're clear in what you're shooting for. So it's about, I guess, ultimately having a target and being able to calibrate what your resources, what are you throwing at to achieve that outcome. So really, data is one tool but also the psychology, this inner game, this inner processing of the information, both structured and heuristic, and also how you let it affect you and your emotions. I think one thing where we probably could go deeper into psychology is also other aspects. As as a person, uh, we should probably talk about maybe health, how we project ourselves to our clients and also more more often than not 
a lot of it is about how we project on social media and how people perceive us and something about getting data in terms of that feedback from the people who you interact with on a regular basis so and some of it is is very hard to really valuably assess because some of it is if you're just asking for positive feedback because you're selling your services as one thing and sometimes sometimes positive testimonials can be seen as inauthentic if everything you're you're showing is just five star review is clearly geared up to <laughs> to an agenda right yeah can also impact your business because if, if if all you're paying attention to is positive feedback you're not improving you're just giving more the same and if there is negative feedback or or even just um suggestions as to how to improve if you're not paying if, if you've got the psycho psychology that you get defensive when that comes and yeah. you try to block it out and you just look at the the tick it means then somebody is going to to do it better than you because they will pay attention to the negative feedback and they will improve what needs to be improved to stop getting that negative feedback. Yeah. And actually, that's another hack that I've seen competitors do or use in terms of you look at your competitors' customer reviews, you see where where they're uh, providing negative feedback, and then you target those areas to deliver a superior product or service. And I think that leads leads us back to the original, the growth mindset piece that um, if you don't have a growth mindset, you won't do that because you don't believe you can change. Yeah. When you have the growth mindset, you think, oh, I can change. Yes, they are way out that competitor. They're the leaders in the market, but there are certain things they don't do well and I can do those things well. Yeah. So I will find out what they are and that's what I'll do and that's my niche then. And then I'll expand from there. Yeah, it's it's about having that positive outlook. One person will see a negative, other people will see an opportunity. So again, it's having that thinking and seeing how can I use this to my advantage. And that's just just using that terminology, the opportunities. I mean, that's your, your typical SWOT analysis: the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And that's one of the things that I often noticed that when we used to do it years ago. That okay, strengths and weaknesses they are what they are, but opportunities and threats. How do you decide what goes into an opportunity and what goes into threat? They, they can basically, the two lists could be the exact same list, whereas a threat is also an opportunity. And it's kind of mindset that will determine, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. It's mindset that determines that. The data will give you the exact same. The glass is right filled up to the middle. You know, it's half empty or half full, irrelevant. The data is what it is. And it's your mindset on that data that, okay, is this half full or is it half empty? Is this an opportunity or is this a threat? Um, it's just pure mindset. The data will give you the exact same answer no matter what way you interpret it. So your psychology will determine how you interpret it and do you interpret that in a good way for you to grow and your business or do you interpret that in a negative way in which case you're going to just, your resilience, your adaptability is going to be hammered constantly because everything's a negative. Yeah. Yeah, it will grind you down if you let it. So... Brilliant. Thank you, John. That concludes this episode of Business Breaks. I hope, listeners, that you enjoyed this show. If you did get value from this, please leave a like, subscribe to the show. And also, if you wouldn't mind giving a review, I will leave a link to the survey in the show notes as well. 
So feel free to subscribe to our email list on businessbreaks.club where we give early notification of episode releases and occasionally offers as well as AI tools and tips. So for all of you listeners out there, thank you very much. And John, thank you for your insights. Thank you, Dante. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us. Business Breaks, all things business podcast with Dante Haley and John Byrne.